So I heard about a young man who went to a Christian college. In fact, he was a Bible major and he was very determined that every part of his life would be under the authority of Scripture. He wanted a chapter and verse before he could do anything. So he ran into a dilemma when he began to have strong feelings for a young lady and they began to date because he really wanted to kiss her goodnight at the end of the date. But he couldn't find a verse in the Bible to permit such a thing. He thought maybe that greet one another with a holy kiss might work, but his Bible professor said that's not talking about dating. So he would take her back to the dorm and he would shake her hand and tell her goodnight and walk away. So at the end of another one of their dates, as he takes her back to the dorm and he starts to shake her hand, she grabs him, pins his shoulders up against the wall, and she begins to kiss him. He begins to scream, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. She says, Matthew seven twelve, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So I want to welcome all of you online to the third of four messages called By Design as we explore God's intent for sexuality. And I have really wanted and set up front for this series to be based in the Word of God. It's not about what does Rick think or what does even our church think, but what does the Bible say? And the reason I'm doing that is because I think Jesus did that. When Jesus was faced with shifting ideologies about sex and marriage, he went to the Word of God. Let me show you. Matthew 19. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 1. And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, I think it's very significant that when Jesus was approached with his idea about sex and marriage and sexual ethics, he says, do you guys not own a Bible? Haven't you read? God has a verse for that. And so as Christians, as we began to shape our sexual ethics, we don't look for guidance to Hollywood or to Washington, and we certainly don't look to Facebook or to public opinion polls. But we do what Jesus did. We go to the Bible. And we've already seen in the very first two chapters of the Bible, God outlines His design for sexuality. In chapter 1, we see that God created these two gendered beings. And the emphasis in the first creation account is on their equality. That maleness and femaleness both equally reflect the image of God. So in chapter 1, the emphasis is on their equality. But in chapter 2, the emphasis is on their um, complementarity. They are alike and they are equal but they're not the same and everything the rest of the Bible is going to endorse and affirm or oppose about sexuality is going to go back to God's stated intent in Genesis 1 and 2 where Jesus took us so let's just look one more time at Genesis 2 The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. 
And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And this is God's design for marriage. And because we believe God designs marriage, we also believe that the God defines marriage. That God tells us what marriage is. So the historic Judeo-Christian definition of marriage, this goes way past Jesus, all the way back to the people of God in the Old Testament. This historic definition has been that marriage is a heterosexual, monogamous, and permanent covenant. It's so permanent that the bond of marriage transcends the bond of parents. And there's no hint that this bond can exist apart from the polarity or the complementarity of the parties. In other words, when God saw that man was alone, he didn't solve the problem by creating another man. That the woman, another gendered being, was the answer. She was both like the man and not like the man. Eve was... Adam's divinely designed partner and complement. Because she was like him in the right way. And she was not like him in the right way. Notice that she wasn't made out of nothing like the creation. And she wasn't made out of the dust like the man. She was made out of the man. She was like the man, but she was also clearly different. From the man. In such a way that they could come together as one flesh. When a husband and wife are sexually joined, in a sense they are rejoined. And only one man and one woman can fulfill this divine intention. And so if you were going to come up with a definition of marriage that said, well, it could be many men with one woman or many women with one man, or it could be two men or it could be two women, you would need a different creation account. Because if you just read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and say, what was the design? When Jesus took us back and said, haven't you read? What did God want? It seems fairly clear that God's design is one man. Becoming one flesh with one woman for one lifetime in the covenant of marriage. And I think there are some important theological reasons why that definition matters. Because you see, marriage depicts God. The reason why what we say about marriage matters is because what marriage says about God matters. And that's why complementarity is so important. Because for one thing, marriage reflects something of the divine nature in its complementarity. You see, if you're a Hebrew and you hear that word, they will become one. That's a powerful thing to you. Because it's the same exact word that's used in what they might say is the most important verse in their Torah, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In a world where there were so many religions with so many gods, Israel maintained, no, there's just one God. And yet the scripture begins, let 
us make man. So in the very beginning, you have this hard to fathom idea that God is one. But in his unity, there is diversity. There is God, the father. There is God, the son. There is God, the Holy Spirit. And they are completely equal. But they are not the same. And so for oneness in marriage to reflect the oneness of God, you need to have two that are completely equal. But they're not the same. And another way that marriage is designed to depict the nature of God is in its capacity to produce life. Because ultimately, God is the author of all life. This doesn't mean that if a couple is infertile, their marriage is invalid. It doesn't mean if a couple gets married later in life and can't have kids, their marriage isn't right or legal. It simply means this. That God, in all of humankind, created one way for life to be produced. The union of one man to one woman. And it reflects God, the author of all life. So you see, this historic definition that marriage is heterosexual, it's monogamous, and it's permanent, is pretty important. It really matters to God that His design is honored. In fact, you don't have a lot in the Bible about God hating anything, but any time it says God hates something, it's because what God hates is destroying what God loves. And that's why the Bible says God hates divorce. Because it destroys the design that he loves. God cares about his design. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You'll notice that he doesn't just say, I'm going to judge the person in a marriage that cheats on their mate. I'm going to judge all the sexually immoral because they're... Behavior hurts my design. But this is not a new thing. People have been living outside of God's design since the beginning of time. They were in Jesus' day. In particular, in Jesus' day, some were thinking, this whole one wife for your whole life, uh, that's too much. So they came up with a new theology. We can find a reason to be displeased with her and give her a piece of paper and get rid of her and go get another wife that we're attracted to. And that's okay, right, Jesus? (laughs) And Jesus responded, do you not have a Bible? Haven't you read? And Jesus defends marriage the way God designed it. When it came to marriage and sex, Jesus was far less tolerant than his contemporaries. We tend to think that Jesus was more progressive or open-minded than the religious authorities of the day. But when it came to sexual ethics, Jesus actually narrowed the parameters. He didn't broaden them. And he made the creative design the standard for sexual ethics. Now, I do know that in the Old Testament... Polygamy was practiced. It wasn't prescribed as much as it was described. In other words, it was a patriarchal world. A woman without a husband could be destitute. And so there was legislation. If your brother dies, you should marry her, if no one else will, so that she won't be destitute. And so that 
your brother's kids will get his inheritance instead of somebody else. But God never affirms polygamy in the Bible. There is not one example in the Old Testament of polygamy turning out well. It's always a disaster. It never turns out well when a man has more than one wife. Do you know why? Because Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. (laughs) And so... By the time you get to Jesus, that whole polygamy experiment is over. Everyone knew that didn't work. And they're practicing one man, one woman. But they're looking for ways to change God's design. And Jesus won't go there. Haven't you read? He affirms no other option for sexual expression. Not sex outside of marriage, not sex before marriage, not multiple marriage partners, not same-sex unions. And his position seemed extreme. Some of his disciples said, let me get you straight. You're saying the only option a man has for sex is to get married to one woman and to stay with her for the rest of his life. And Jesus said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's God's design. Or you can choose not to marry. Be single and celibate. And Jesus puts both co-equal in dignity as options. You see, the creative design was behind Jesus' theology of sexuality. And what he made it very clear that he was for should make it pretty clear what he's not for. Now, we need to start a conversation today that I want to conclude next week. Because recently there's been tremendous pressure on the church to accept a new definition of marriage. And that would be same-sex marriage. And I hope in these next few minutes you're going to hear not just my head, but my heart. Because as I wrote this sermon on every line. Faces popped into my mind of people I really love. I think I've made it clear already that as I read Scripture, I find no endorsement in the Bible for the expression of sexuality outside the parameter of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. And in a moment, I'm going to talk a little bit about Why I think that's the biblical position. But before I get there, I really need you to hear my heart today and then next week. With three observations I think are very important to this conversation. The first is that an orientation is not a sin. Because a person has a feeling, it's not the feeling that's wrong, it's what they do with it. It's not the attraction, it's the action they may choose to take. Because we all have desires that must be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. You heard me say in the first lesson, love is not God because we love things we shouldn't love. We want things we shouldn't want. We have desires that aren't God's desires for us. And so desires are not self-validating. Just because I 
feel something doesn't mean I should do it. For example, if I was to go to my wife and say, Jamie, you know I love you. But I have noticed that I sometimes have feelings for or am attracted to other women. And so I conclude that by nature I'm polygamous. And to be true to myself, I must also be free to pursue other women. She would respond and say, and to be true to myself, I must hit you upside the head with a two by four. <laughs> now, I'm being a little light because I, 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 I want to break some of the tension. Here's the reality. Every parent knows that as you raise a child, you don't say to that child, anything you want or feel is legitimate. But you train them to steward their desires. You don't take an is and make it an ought. The question isn't so much, who do I feel I am, but who does God want me to be? So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul has a list of some behaviors that he says are outside of the kingdom. And twice in that list, he mentions homosexual behavior, not orientation, but behavior. And he says, that's what some of you were. But now you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? That's what some of you were. Does he mean you don't have those feelings anymore? No. When you got saved, did you stop having some of the feelings you had from your old life? What he means is you don't find your identity anymore in your past orientation. You're finding your identity now in Jesus. Jesus is defining who you are, not some feeling. And our church is full of people who came to Christ with all kinds of desires and struggles. And they're learning to find their identity in their Savior and not in their struggle. Because orientation is not a sin. And since we're on the subject of sin, let me just add, the Bible does not advocate a totem pole view of sin. Where we make some sins really, really bad and some not so bad, especially if it's the sin I struggle with. Isn't that what we do? Don't we tend to call major sin the sin that I don't have a major problem with? But here's the reality. All sin separates from God. And all Christians are just sinners who've been saved by grace. When I think about my sins, when you think about your sins... Our greed, our lust, our racism, our gossip, our anger, our lack of concern for the poor. Do any of us need to be in the ranking of sin business? I don't think so. And I might add, the overwhelming majority of sexual sin... In the church at large and in this church is committed by heterosexuals. You've heard it said, love the sinner, hate the sin. Let me give you a more biblical adage. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. Start there. And one more thing. My neighbor is to be loved no matter who he is or where he is. All of us know people that deal with same-sex attraction. They are our neighbors, our co-workers, they're our friends. They're our family members. 
they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. As Christians, we're called to love everybody. And you don't have to agree with me for me to agree with Jesus that I'm to love you. Period. So my word to a person that identifies as gay would be my word to a person who identifies as straight. Come follow Jesus. Come join me. Let's go follow Jesus. Because I am absolutely persuaded that anybody who wholeheartedly follows Jesus is going to end up in a good place. Rosario Butterfield uh, has written on this subject from her background as a radical feminist, a professor at Syracuse, and one who identified as a lesbian. She met Christ and experienced a profound change in her desires. In fact, today she's married and is the wife of a pastor. But she makes a statement that I think is very important. She says, my new affection wasn't heterosexuality. It was Jesus. I wasn't converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. The conversation begins not with the design, but with the heart of the designer. To invite everyone to come and follow Jesus and to get to know him. And that's why I think the Bible is important. I don't worship the Bible. I worship Jesus. But the Bible was God's gift to us to find Jesus. The Bible takes us to Jesus. And then Jesus takes us to the Bible and says, haven't you read? Haven't you read what God's intent for sexuality is? And I think I've been clear that as I read Scripture, God's design is for sex to only operate within the parameter of a heterosexual marriage. Now, some will say, but the Bible doesn't even talk that much about homosexuality. That's true. But the Bible does talk a lot about sex and marriage. And the Bible talks a lot about what God is for in sex and marriage. And while the Bible doesn't say a lot about homosexuality, it does say something. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And what it does say is very clear and very consistent. And the voice of Scripture is univocal. There simply is no hint in the Bible. Not a proverb, not a psalm, not a prophecy, not a narrative or story. There's simply no hint in Scripture of God's approval of same-sex behavior. And in fact, most that would champion the church recognizing a new definition would say, we get that, we know that. But that's because the people who wrote the Bible didn't understand the idea of a committed, monogamous, same-sex relationship. What the Bible is condemning is exploitive same-sex relationships. Well, they did exist in ancient times. The practice of pedestry, where an old man would have a young boy as a sex slave, was very common in the Roman world. Or if you went to a cultic temple, there would typically be male prostitutes 
that would be part of idol worship. And we would all agree that's evil. But the truth is, and the secular research is uh, unassailable. The ancient world certainly did know about committed same-sex relationships. They go back way before the time of Jesus in the literature. When Paul says in Romans 1, as he speaks about homosexuality, these are consumed with passion for each other. He's not talking about exploitation there. He's talking about mutual consent. Frankly, it's a bit of chronological snobbery to say, well, you know, we just know so much more about sexuality than the ancients did. There's nothing new under the sun. But at the end of the day, I land where I land because I think that's where Jesus stood. And you'll hear the comment, but Jesus didn't even talk about homosexuality. So let me respond to that. In the first place, that would assume that the Gospels are higher in authority than the rest of the Bible. And Jesus didn't read the Bible that way. Jesus clearly thought Genesis 1 and 2 are authoritative and speak to our lives. We believe that the Spirit of Christ inspired the entire Bible. And that the entire Bible has permission to shape who we are. It's also, I think, a weakness of that position because we don't tend to equate silence with approval in any other arena. To my knowledge, Jesus never spoke about incest or abortion or domestic violence. I I could give you a list of 50 behaviors that you would not approve of that Jesus never talked about. But at the end of the day... I think Jesus did talk about it. Remember who his audience would have been? Jesus is speaking to Jewish people that would have been steeped in the knowledge of the Torah or the Old Testament. And in that Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, as Moses is preparing the children of Israel to go into the land of Canaan, where many different kinds of sexuality are practiced, there's this section in Leviticus called the Holiness Code. For God outlines a number of kinds of sexuality that he does not endorse. Twice in that code, homosexuality is mentioned. Everyone Jesus spoke to knew that. That was not up for debate in Jesus' day. That everything in that code was outside of God's design. Now question, was Jesus a coward when it came to being a teacher? If he thought everyone thought something was wrong, but he thought it was right, was he ever afraid to say so? If everyone thought something was right, but it was wrong, was Jesus afraid to say so? No one listening to Jesus would have changed their mind about what God said in the Torah about sexuality. Unless Jesus gave them a clear word and permission to do so. And I think Jesus did speak with a clear word. Matthew 15, he's asked about washing your hands. And he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. That word sexual immorality in the Greek is the word porneia. It's the word that's used in the Greek Old Testament 
to describe all the things that were listed in the holiness code. When Jesus spoke against porneia or sexual immorality, they would have heard him affirming everything that Moses said they were not to do. Not one person would have listened to Jesus and have said, I bet he wasn't talking about homosexual behavior. The fact is, Jesus called all of us to an alternative lifestyle. And it's called, deny yourself and submit your desires to my Lordship. He said in Mark 8.34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Living with denied desires is not the exception in the kingdom. It's the rule for all of us. We're all asked to carry a cross and deny our desires. Not just people that deal with same-sex attraction. In fact, uh, last week, I got more response to my sermon than any sermon I've preached in years. I heard from single Christians, not just in our church, but literally across the nation, who said, thank you. Thank you for talking about us. Thank you for validating singleness. Thank you for addressing how hard it is to be single and live celibately. When that's not your inner desire. When, you're, when your desire is to want to be married. And you've never had the opportunity to be married. And so you're trying to honor Jesus. I uh, read a book by a man named Sam Alberry. Now Sam is a minister for the Anglican Church in England. And he identifies as same-sex attracted. And his study of Scripture has led him to conclude, I can't act on my inner desire and be faithful to Scripture. And so he chooses to be celibate. It's not easy. And he quotes Mark 8.34. He says, it's the same for all of us. Whoever, I'm to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. Every Christian's called to cost a sacrifice. Denying yourself doesn't mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It's saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life forfeit. It's laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it. And through His death, He's bought it. And he writes, ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. As though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is, the gospel demands everything of all of us. And if someone thinks the gospel has somehow slid into their life quite easily, and it has caused no major adjustment to their aspirations or to their lifestyle, then it's likely they have never really started following Jesus at all. And so a few years before her death, a reporter asked Mother Teresa if she was married, which makes me think he must not know a lot about nuns. And Mother Teresa replied, yes, I am. And my spouse can be so demanding. Haven't 
you read. Jesus called us to a narrow way. He told us we were going to carry a cross. He said you're going to spend your life going upstream in a downstream culture. He didn't mislead us. And for 2,000 years, the church has understood sexuality the way I presented it today. And let's be clear that the global church around the world is overwhelmingly in line with God's design and what they preach. I don't think it's because the Bible has been unclear. I think because of cultural pressure, the church has been unwilling to hear it. Culture says the most authoritative voice in your life should be that inner voice. Jesus says, listen to another voice. Listen to a higher voice. And that's why we go to the Bible. For our sexual ethics. The Bible took us to Jesus. And Jesus, He takes us to the Bible. And that word starts with a marriage. That really matters. It really matters. Because you see, marriage declares Jesus. The reason God cares so much about marriage is because it's always been about something bigger than marriage. Let me show you a final time that Genesis 2 is quoted in the Bible. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And at the very end of that paragraph, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh And then he says, this is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. You see, the very beginning of the Bible was pointing us to the very end. And our final redemption is pictured as a wedding. The wedding the whole Bible's been pointing to. Jesus is the bridegroom. A banquet's getting prepared. He's coming for his bride. And he's asked her to stay pure. And to be holy. To be prepared. For the wedding. I know it's hard. I know in our culture. If you live by the sexual ethics of Jesus, you will be considered strange. But I'm telling you, I read the end of the book. I read about that wedding. It is so worth it. So stay holy. Stay pure. Be prepared. We're going to a wedding real soon. Let me pray for us. God, I hope not just my head, but my heart was heard today. I hope my words were full of grace and truth. 
I hope your church will have the courage to love everybody well. And I hope we will also have the courage in the face of a culture that is so out of line with your design on so many things to not be ashamed to trust Jesus. May we all take up our cross. May we all follow well. And God, may we invite anyone who wants to know about Jesus to come walk with us. Come quickly, Jesus. We're ready for a wedding. Amen.